Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen here, Chief Content Officer and co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. Today, I'm talking to my good friend, Joel Stein. Before we get to our conversation, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends at The One Atelier Fikai, who made today's episode possible. There's been a lot of innovation in the clean beauty space, but Jean Godfrey June, our executive beauty director, will tell you that one of the most exciting things to happen in a while is this. A new line of high-performance, clean hair products designed in the salon of one of the world's top hairdressers, Frederick Fikai. It's called the Pure Collection by The One Atelier Fikai. It's made with 95% natural ingredients, including soothing aloe vera. There are no sulfates, parabens, or silicones. It's vegan and naturally fragranced, and it really works. Jean loves the Pure Shampoo, Conditioner, and Mist so much, we've got them stocked in the Goop shop now but you can also shop the Pure Collection at theonebyfakai.com. And if you're on their site, you can enter Goop at checkout to get 20% off your purchase of the Pure Shampoo, Conditioner, or Mist. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Joel Stein is a journalist and author of In Defense of Elitism, which just came out. He's also incredibly smart and hilarious. I had a great time talking to him today, and maybe an even better time reading his book, which is truly laugh-out-loud funny. We talk about his book and why politics sometimes shakes out in the way that it does, and all the surprising reasons that people vote in the way that they do. You'll learn more about that in the episode, and why it's not what you think. Joel also explains what he means by elitism and why he thinks it's important. 
people died to give us democracy, not because it made us richer or more powerful, but because it's a human right to be able to to control your country's destiny and your, your express your political, you know, opinion. Okay, let's get to my chat with Joel Stein. All right, so your book, I laughed the whole time. Oh, you're very kind. You're very I'm, kind to have read it. I'm um, not even... Reading is hard. Reading is hard. Oh, but God. no, it was a pleasure. It's so funny and, and incredibly palatable. And I thought so insightful because I think, not that you crack the nut, but I feel like you come close in many moments to cracking a nut, which I think has plagued people on all sides of the political spectrum. Like how, what, what, what are we fighting about and how did we even get here? Yeah. And um, I, that's what it's about. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I want incredibly palatable on the uh, back of the book. <laughs> that's highly, the review I was looking for. Well, it's so highly funny. Palatable. Sorry, I exaggerated. And it's so entertaining. Like, okay, just to read to you from the beginning. This oh, you're going to read the my introduction. book? Oh, my God. Hopefully it I hasn't might changed. This might be a problem. Since I, I know this is an early galley when I started emailing you about all the typos. You had put your copywriter in the acknowledgement, so I had assumed she'd already done the copywriting to get the acknowledgement. I was such a pain in the ass and made so many changes <laughs> that she was just trying to keep up. Okay. So this is an early – I mean, I feel like your even your view of, of this evolves over the course of the book – but I thought this was really interesting. The populist revolution succeeded tonight for the same reason. This is you on on an election night, right? Yeah. The populist revolution succeeded tonight for the same reason it did nearly two centuries ago. The main reason Trump won wasn't economic anxiety. It wasn't sexism. It wasn't racism. It wasn't that he was anti-elitist. Hillary Clinton represented Wall Street, academics, policy papers, Davos, international treaties, and the people who think they're better than you, people like me. Trump represented something far more appealing, which is beating up people like me. A poll taken a month before the 2016 election showed that only 24% of voters disagreed with the statement, the real struggle for America is not between Democrats and Republicans, but between mainstream America and the ruling political elites. Yeah, that's what this election was about. It's what Brexit was about. It's what all these, you know, the Brazil election, it's, it's what happened in Turkey. It's what, I mean, we see these autocrats springing up all over the world on these anti-elite platforms. And it's highly effective. Do you think, though, because it is a global movement, that it is, this is where I'm going to goop out on you a little bit, but that there's some sort of like spiritual cycle where people are willing to accept a certain amount of knowledge or a certain way of things being for a certain amount of time, and then there's sort of a collective rejection? Is it part of our our global advancement? So there's like a, there's a Hegelian dialectic going on <laughs> in the spiritual world. Where, God, you're such um, an elite. No, I but... know, but that's what you're saying. Like that there's, and it's going to reverse at some point. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. Like McCarthyism was very short mm -hmm. historically, but the dark ages were very long. Yeah. So I don't know. You know. That's the thing about living through history. You don't know how it will resolve, which is why I wanted to write a book like this to try and at least make some influence, have some influence upon it. But, but do you think we're influencing each other globally? Sure. Or do you think that this is just something that we're all, like, that there's something that we're all feeling? Oh, I think we greatly influence each other socially, obviously. Mm -hmm. And that movements, you know, whether it's the Enlightenment or this, everyone always thinks there's some purely economic or purely technological reason changes occur. But some of it's just philosophical. Like, mm -hmm. people make arguments and they catch on. So that's certainly part of what's going on. I think there is a reaction to some giant change or, or several giant changes that are occurring. And some historian 100 years from now will make very clear. But 
I don't know if that change that changes something to do with globalization, obviously, mm-hmm. and it has something to do and that all of that means that immigration, the knowledge economy, this bifurcation of people in the knowledge economy and people in the service and industrial sectors. But you know, no one likes change. Right. Well, it also seems to be a reaction to an increasingly complex world, which you you make that point several several times is that when you go to Miami, Texas, is it Miami or Miami? Oh, I like both of those, but it's Miami, which (laughs) I thought was a Southern accent thing. And then I realized was, and then I thought it was like a Southern accent thing for a long time ago. And now it just become Miami, but it's actually the, the tribe of native Americans who had lived there, which has nothing to do with the place in Miami, which was a different tribe. Got it. Miami. Miami. Miami, Texas, which the was it 95% voted for Trump? A little over that. Yeah, okay. so I went to the county in America that had the highest percentage of Trump voters and lived there for a year. Um, no, I didn't. That would be awesome. <laughs> That's a whole book. I was there for a week. But I learned all that I would have if I were there for a year. You made a lot of close friends. I did. I'm still in touch. I was just talking to, to Jerry the other day. He called me. He wanted me to hang out with him. He's going to be in Vegas to <laughs> see the Eagles. Really? Yeah. Has he? Con- has which he... now is Vince Gill in it, which I didn't know. I didn't know that me either. Me neither. Has he effectively converted you and saved your soul? <sighs> he brings it up still on the phone. Yeah. And then I stupidly bring it up because I did a story for Vanity Fair recently where I went to a lot of churches. And so I, I brought that up with him, which just got him started. But he... Yeah, he doesn't always bring it up, but he does. They still pray for me every week at the First Baptist Church in Miami. Like, literally me, and there's a list of people they print out on a sheet that they pray for, and I'm the only one that's been on there. It's been two years now, running, that all the people who go to this church, like, they have no idea who I am, I'm sure, but my name keeps popping up. Maybe they do by now know who I am. What do you think that they're, what's the goal? What are they praying? Oh, to make me a Christian. Save my soul, like, so I go to heaven. Okay. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so talk about Miyama. Oh my God, this is Miyama. <laughs> Just like Miami with a southern accent. Miyama. You don't know that I can't pronounce anything. But you're from the middle of our country. You should be able to pronounce everything. Why can't you pronounce anything? I don't know. I really? butcher a lot of words, yeah. That's why you became a writer and now you're screwed. Exactly. You're, oh, now wow. I'm expected to actually speak. Oh, Miyama. There you go. Okay, so Miyama. So I thought it was actually a very moving section of the book, which I know is sort of the intent, right? Like you went expecting what? Well, I had Like a hotbed of racism? For sure. Yeah. And I I expected them to be very poor, very uneducated, very hostile towards anyone from the East or West Coast, very unaware of my lifestyle and anti-Semitic. You know, did you read that book? Oh, what was the book that was super popular after the election about this guy writing about his West Virginia roots, oh. his mama and his papa? Yeah, it's... Uh, I know exactly. Uh, Hillbilly Elegy. H- yeah. Yeah, so I expected Hillbilly Elegy when I got there. Right. And that wasn't at all what this town was. This town was pretty well off, and most people had gone to college. They they worked in the oil and gas sector, or the rich families that had been there forever were ranching families. And they knew all about my life. Mm-hmm. Like, either... Th- because they had friends or relatives in some of these cities or because they consumed so much, you know, TV and movies about us that they knew way more about my life than I knew about theirs. Yeah. No, and I I think that and then was there a perception of animosity that you would have prejudged them? Like did, was there an expectation that did they think that I would have prejudged them? Yeah. Or did they assume Yes, they kept asking if I thought they were racist. Interesting. A lot. 
Yeah. Uh, it's it's a almost completely white town. It is a completely white town. Yes, they definitely thought that I would think they were racist and they weren't entirely wrong. Right. Yeah. And was there antipathy or it seemed like a full embrace of you? Was it was it an act of were they trying to convert you or was it just they wanted you to understand? I think they they had been visited by CNN twice and were very hostile towards the press after that. They felt they had been misrepresented. Mm-hmm. I mean, I watched the videos. I didn't think it was so bad, but they were really angry about that. But I think, you, you know, from reporting, if you spend enough time, and again, a year would have been better, but even a week of pretty much constant socializing and living in the town, I think was enough to get them to believe that I was going to give a more holistic view of their life. And they were, and like everyone, they were eager to, to tell you about their lives if they thought you were listening. Yeah. What I'm saying is I'm a great reporter. You're a great reporter. That's that's why I just simplify it. Yeah. No, but it's interesting, small towns being from Montana and I was just home recently and Montana's a purple state and I've met your democratic Senator. Tester? Yeah. Yeah. We have Tester. We also have Danes. And our we have a Democratic governor, Bullock, who's running for president. And So he thinks. So he thinks, yeah. right? Hopefully he'll run for Senate. He's really smart. and But it's interesting because the conservative values there, and Trump won that state. But it's just a different type of Republicanism than I think most people in the smile states – I think that people mis- would misjudge those Republicans as well. Would you? You said the smile states. Yeah, like, well, I guess. Oh wow, I've never heard that. Okay. Yeah, not. So, I mean, yeah, more urban, like the Got it. Yeah, 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 the yeah, coasts yeah. and and cities, and you know, a lot of I we I pretty much stack up very closely with. They're more libertarian. Mm-hmm. And that's a Western kind of Republican. It's a Western Republican. It's very, it, they're incredible protectors of the land yeah. and stewards of the environment. And it's very much a, you do you, I don't care, yeah. leave me alone, which just doesn't scale up, right? So like if you're a rancher and you right. protect your soil and you don't need regulation, of course, but if you're polluting major rivers, Well, that's why do. populism is about not scaling up. Right. It's about reversing that scaling up. It's about about reverting to the smallest possible tribal unit you can and not having immigrants come and not trading with China and, mm-hmm. and making everything right here. So getting back to a very, very manageable small community, which of course historically doesn't give you much prosperity and it doesn't give you it gives you wars, mm-hmm. you know, when when you retreat to a, to the smaller and smaller city states. But but I think that's what these people are clamoring for. That's what the people in Miami, Texas definitely wanted. They wanted, they thought the people in Austin and the people in Washington were making rules that didn't consider their lives, mm-hmm. which is somewhat true. But furthermore, they're in an existential crisis, the people in small towns, because small towns for the most part are in trouble. And then Miami, Texas, whether they know it or not, has a crumbling sewer system. And, it, and because oil and gas prices are so down, they have very little coming in in taxes. And and people are leaving that town. Mm-hmm. There's very few people between 18 and 35. The people seem to come back to have kids, mm-hmm. maybe at 18 and 30. But there's very few people who stay in that town, especially during kind of key growth years. And and these places are in trouble, and they know that. And And especially if you're religious, you just feel like your way of life is coming to an end. 
And if you have to pick a man who curses and sleeps around with porn stars and discusses your values, if he's the exterminator to fix the problem with the cockroaches, then then you'll put up with him because because mm-hmm. things are that desperate. And what are they? What are their expectations of Trump? Oh, he stops immigration. He, he stops time, right? right. That he's st- it, that he makes. America, you know, he he Brexitizes us. He breaks us off from the rest of the world and returns us to a time when we were self-sufficient and people could have jobs that weren't purely knowledge economy jobs, Mm -hmm. you know, where, I mean, these people in Miami listen to me rail against global warming when, you know, I was the one who flew two planes each way to get there. Right. And, and kind of denigrate the hard work they're doing of, like, pulling resources out of the ground so I could fly there. Mm-hmm. And instead, like, being proud of the fact that I make, like, dick jokes about politics in a book. I think that's hard to swallow. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. not a world that they want to thrive. Totally. I agree that a lot of the things that they're mourning or that, that they've maintained – are things that the rest of us are collectively mourning too, like that poignant moment. I can't remember who it was when he asked you how many people in a 10-block radius would you leave your child with for the night? Yeah. I, I you know, I live in, in a park where most of the people are either homeless or successful musicians around me. <laughs> and so there, there's no one I would leave my kid with at the last minute. And it's interesting. I looked at the Bhutan Happiness Index test. Mm-hmm which they use to determine the happiness of various places. And it turns out that's like one of the questions on there is if you had an emergency, is there someone you could turn to who lives right near you to watch your kids? So he was right. Like that's an important, these people got together on each other's porches every night and just hung out without looking at their phones. Right. Like I have no doubt that's a better life than the one I lead yeah. uh, for, for my own happiness. But for the world, probably not. No, it's it's these th- these these experiences and and even this access weirdly to nature that doesn't yeah. scale. You know, that's the problem. It's like it doesn't yes scale to a city. I don't know what the solution is. I mean, do you feel like you, based on what's happening, what will or might happen in the next election, like do you have an understanding of what would what would be resonant? In the short term, I think I know the best appeal mm-hmm. to make to independent voters. I, I don't know how, where this will go or the, you know, how effective it would be, but I think we are living in a very far right skewing time. Mm-hmm. So th- this probably isn't the moment to have an incredibly progressive Democratic candidate. I just don't know how much resonance that will have with your average voter who's probably scared and thinks of that as a huge change, right. socialism or whatever you want to call it. I, I think the appeal has to be to under, to at least listen and understand the people who are mourning their dominance, and mm-hmm. a lot of it's racial. A lot of it's like white people could just give their buddy a job because he was a good guy, right? And that you know, or college admissions because they were, you know, their dad was a, went there was a good guy. That kind of thing is ending both mm-hmm. on the elite level and just the normal small town level, and and people feel like a loss of white people, especially rural white people, feel a loss of power, which they are they are enduring. Mm-hmm. And it, it's hard to feel sympathy for that because they're still in control. But you have to have a modicum of sympathy for the fact that 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 you feel a difference in acceleration, not speed. And that's right. what they're feeling. So I, I would say that the thing that we have to hold on to now in order to have a future is democracy. And 
as important as everything else is, all these progressive causes, all these green causes are secondary to me to maintaining and keeping democracy. So if the if the elite left and the elite right have to come together and compromise on taxes or on the environment, I'm okay with that for now as long as they can throw out the people who who don't don't care at all. I mean, the amount of people, if you poll people in Western countries and ask them how important democracy is to them, it's not very high. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to really explain to people that this is the most important thing to hold on to because democracy is frustrating. I mean, not democracy, but the republics are frustrating. There are mm-hmm. all these checks and balances. There's all these things to slow the system down. There's there's all these distances between the voter and the law. And you get an authoritarian, and they're like, you people want this? You want out of the European Union? Like, just vote on it. Well, I'll just give you what you want. Like, right. don't worry about the details. Like, don't worry about the MPs that get in your way. I'll just throw them aside and deliver it. And that's when societies really fall apart when you get your Yelp, when you get your Putins and your, your mm-hmm. dictators and your Pol Pots. Totally. And I think we've also, you mentioned this in the book as well, but done a disservice to everyone with this idea of saying, like, there's no give or take in our government, or at least in the yeah. in the promises that are made by politicians. And so there's this idea of like this, you can have it all, you know, yeah. there's no, there's nothing that must be sacrificed there's in no order for, for this. Sacrifice, right? No, and then everyone obviously clearly because that's not how the world works is disappointed in the outcome. And there's, there's a moment where I spent some time talking to Tucker Carlson. Yeah, and he said the one thing I really didn't want to hear a conservative say, which was, you know, I don't know if democracy works at this scale. I don't know if 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 that's still. You, he said you pick you choose democracy not because it's a democracy, but because it delivers the best results. That's how you choose a political system. And I, and I was like, no. Like, it wasn't long ago that, that everyone said we sacrificed for democracy. I mean, that's what this country was founded on. Like, right. we, we gave, you know, people died to give us democracy, not because it gave, made us richer or more powerful, but because it's a human right to be able to, to control your country's destiny and your, your, express your political, you know, opinion. Mm-hmm. So, no, democracy doesn't have to work best for it still to be you know, worth sacrificing for. And yeah, I don't think people talk about sacrifice much anymore. Yeah. I thought the Tucker, the Tucker passages were really fascinating in part just because I do think that he had a lot of great points. Doesn't he? Yeah. So I know I'm afraid of what people are going <laughs> to, my friends are so going to think of that, but yeah, he no. does. You know, his Nate, book's pretty good. I haven't read his book, but yeah. I feel actually inclined to go and read it. And, you know, when he talks about how, the left, re- the left's reaction to Trump being this, how how much we met. He's like when when the mailman runs away with your wife. I'll, I'm not going to quote him correctly, but when the mailman takes your wife from you, it's like putting all of your ire on the mailman instead of saying like, what did I do wrong here, and what sort of husband was I, and what's my responsibility in this? Yeah, which I think is totally fair, and I think it's been very easy and convenient to. Look at what Trump represents, which is, you know, a misogynist, sexual assaulting, racist, whack job. I mean, among many other things. And then to also say everyone, anyone who supported him is there for those things as well. And then so even greater divide. Or is, or is only those things. Or, right. Or, or that's their animating 
right. motive compared to that's just something they're less sensitive to than I would like. Right. That's what they are willing to tolerate in order to get right. the policies that they think Clearly, that they if need. you voted for racism, misogyny and sexism is is pro- you're not as sensitive to that as right. you or I are. Like right. you're willing to tolerate a higher level of that. And that sucks. But to to say that that's why you voted for him is is a is a different mm-hmm. reason for it. And and to look a little more closely at these reasons I think is important yeah. if you're going to get this to go away. Well, well not, what I what I also think it speaks to and and I want to talk about elitism is the just basic distrust, right? So I think for a lot of people they were like, well Trump's just puts his foot in his mouth, but everyone's terrible, right? Right. All that's of his, these that's people, his philosophy. Yeah. Every time. It's every time he does something bad, it's just like, listen, people, that's how the world works. It's right. a tough world. It's like very Sopranos. Yeah. It's like, it's a tough world. You guys are naive. This is what you have to do. And it's never true. It's right. like the world isn't so evil as people assume. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. We'll get back to Joel Stein in just a second. If you listen to our spinoff podcast series, The Beauty Closet, then you know what our executive beauty editor, Jean Godfrey-June, sounds like. But if you don't know what she looks like, she's gorgeous, and her hair always looks amazing and effortless, and it's probably a couple feet longer than mine. So when Jean recommends a hair product, you listen. And right now, she loves the Pure Collection from the One Atelier Fikai. It's the new luxury hair care line by world-famous hairstylist Frederick Fikai and it's his first totally clean collection. The products draw from the power of botanicals and are made with 95% natural ingredients. Some of them include aloe vera, hydrolyzed quinoa protein, pro-vitamin B5, and Edelweiss antioxidants. The Pure Collection is free of sulfates, parabens, and silicones, and it really works. Jean used the shampoo and conditioner this morning, and because she's way more of an authority than I am, I'll tell you what she said about them. They smell great, feel great, and leave your hair shiny and bouncy. It's truly no compromise. A chic, incredible performance shampoo and conditioner. I believe all this because Jean's hair really is that luxurious. You can find the Pure Collection in the Goop shop, or you can go to theonebythakai.com. If you're on their site, enter code Goop at checkout to get 20% off your purchase of the Pure Shampoo, Conditioner, or Mist. Regardless of the occasion, I'll be happier if I'm in sneakers. Weirdly, this is a lesson that took me a while to learn. Comfort is the most important factor, especially in a shoe, which is probably the main reason we like Allbirds sneakers. They are insanely comfortable and really lightweight. They have a streamlined design, come in a lot of different colors and silhouettes, and go with everything. 
For all the sustainability enthusiasts out there, all birds are made with materials like ZQ certified merino wool, FSC certified eucalyptus fibers, and carbon negative green EVA foam. For everyone else, what that means is Allbirds cares about the environment. And they make shoes that are really versatile, style-wise and otherwise. Their wool runners are great for long days on your feet, and the tree breezers are the kind of flats that you'd wear straight from work to drinks. To get your own pair of Allbirds, or a pair for your kids too, check out allbirds.com. Back to my chat with Joel Stein. How did we get here, and when did elite elitism and elites like when did that become a dirty word and a dirty concept oh forever is the short answer but i'd say in our recent history it definitely picked up steam right around like sarah palin howard dean Mm -hmm. but you know it had been a big deal against adelaide stevenson against eisenhower it had it had been big deal when jackson andrew jackson beat john quincy adams Mm -hmm. had a lot of resonance then it's baked into certainly American DNA and probably just everyone's DNA. But yeah, I think people look. There's a there's a healthy revolutionary attitude about questioning the people in power, and mm-hmm. that's awesome. But that can quickly kind of you know shy towards conspiracy theory, uh, and that's when it becomes. And then you start believing everything's corrupt, so you can do whatever you want. And then you start to tolerate corruption, corruption, and then you get a society in which, you know, cops are pulling you over and shaking you down for a hundred bucks. And every time you want to do anything, you have to find the right person to bribe. Like mm-hmm. right. these corrupt societies exist partly because people believed their society was corrupt and accepted it. And yeah. that's what that's what a big part of what Trumpism is. Like he's we're slowly accepting more government corruption. Right. I think that's fair. I also think. That and I know you talk about this with is it Scott Adams? Yeah, the with Dilbert Scott guy. Scott Adams, the Dilbert guy, when he essentially um, and he is obviously an, an educated and smart guy, but he suggests that he too could be president. Like there's this idea that yeah. anyone could do the well, job. We, well, we did it right. We literally <laughs> picked a reality show person. Like kind of could have been any reality show person. And we made that person – like, he had no qualifications whatsoever, obviously. So on some level, anyone can be president. Yeah. So, so it's not a, it's no longer such a crazy thing to say. Right. But uh, how do we get – how do we recover that? Because like you, I believe – I want the person who's running the country, regardless of political affiliation, to be smart and measured and experienced. Yeah. Is this just an aberration or do you think that this – do you think Trump is just such a fluke and, and such an outlier and that there's no one else who will have sort of his ability to capture the imagination and the mischievousness of Americans? Well, I don't and- think there's anything special about Donald Trump. I think he just happened to be at the right place because, uh, you know, every country has some Donald Trump who right. seems more ridiculous than the next. Yeah. So it, it seems to me like it wasn't – He's not special. It was just that's the that's the Boris Johnson we got. Right. You know? As far as do I think you go back, you never go fully back, right? Like yeah. Andrew Jackson, you never got founding fathers after Andrew Jackson. You never got that kind of dignity anymore. I don't know if you ever really get completely back after Nixon. 
I mean, I'd like, I mean, that's what Biden's running on. He's running on the restoration. Right. And that's very appealing to me. Me too. Um, not him necessarily, but that, that message of, yeah. not that he's not appealing, but the message of the restoration is very appealing. Yeah. No, we need someone who can drive us back toward the middle where we can all remember that we all, I'd say 80, what, 80% of the same things. Yeah. Isn't it weird that we're now like advocating to like make America great again? Yeah. Like it was th- three and a half years ago. Like it's weird, but that's like where we're at. It's very yeah. conservative. I know it's interesting, but it's, it's, I was talking to someone who was saying too, he was like, you know, it can be very frustrating for social justice people and others on the conservative side who believe that they, they want, you know, a hundred percent unity, right? They want everyone to believe in all the things that they believe in. But if you look at any group of people, they're all, you're going to have that times two in terms of the number of opinions. Like you'll never agree what you and I want will never be the same thing. Sure. Yeah. But so That's, assuming, yeah, like I feel like we've lost the ability to sort of compromise. Um, at compromise. All. Yeah. yeah. I have a friend who describes compromise. This is in, in the world of uh, her marriage as when two people agree to get nothing they want. <laughs> it's true. But yeah, I think we all have the attitude towards compromise right now. Well, that, and that's a brilliant thing. It's the, it's, it is an act of selflessness, right? And I feel yeah. like I think we've all been sort of pro- programmed in a weird way to believe that we can, we should have everything that we want and we're entitled to that and screw anyone who wouldn't allow us that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you're younger than me, but I didn't grow up during that 60s revolution. So I didn't really grow up with any t- massive change or mm-hmm. disagreement yeah. in our country. And, and now we're having it. And it's, and it's about, I remember I wrote during the election, I was, people thought the, the Clinton-Trump election was stupid because, you know, the, the way he was bringing the debate down to WWE level seems right. stupid. But I was arguing, like, this is the first time we've actually talked about anything as a country since I've been alive. Yeah. Like, it was always like, how high should taxes be on what percentage of people? It was, it was so technocratic. And, like, now we were talking about race and gender and, like, yeah. you know you know, religion. It was like, oh, now we're, we're actually voting on something. No, I think that it has been as as dark as it's been for men. And I, I don't want to diminish anyone's pain or how hard the last several years have been. But I do feel like it has forced conversations that are essential yeah. like, and completely woken up a lot of complacent people, including myself. You know, I yeah. would vote and participate but that's sort of the extent, you know, go to some fundraisers and I'm decently well read, but I wasn't. You want to list some more things that are good about you? <laughs> you great skin. Thank you. <laughs> Super smart. It's cute um, blow peel pads, but I, I I'm, was a, I'm kind not sure, of a shitty citizen. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm torn on whether it's good that we're having these conversations. Really? A lot of people are emboldened to say and do things that they weren't before. Yeah. I kind of like social norms. No, that, like, yeah, we, that's fair. That we don't just say racist things and we don't like I I kinda liked it before better. But I if you're looking for silver linings. You certainly are. Yeah. I I am not. <laughs> I'm looking for a change fast. Are you hopeful for the election? I go back and forth. I mean, I don't know. You look at you can look at plenty of historical data. It's very hard for a sitting president with a good economy to lose. Yeah. But it's also you've really never had a president that made no attempt at all to get beyond his base. Yeah. So so also we live in this weird anti-elitist time where 
I could see a world where we we don't have a two-term president for a long time. It's just like just constant anger and disappointment at whoever's in charge, just throwing out everyone. What do you think? What do you think will happen in your mo- in the most optimistic light? If this is a fever that breaks and yeah. people accept the fact that the world has changed and we move on, I guess, and we we appreciate how successful we were at beating back an authoritarian. That's a hopeful version. And then how do you within that, how do we how do we make people in Miami? Right. Did I say it right? You did a great job. In Miami. How do we make people in Miami feel yeah. seen and heard and included? It's a really good question. I guess I guess you have to pour more energy and money into those areas to prop them up right now. Yeah. Um, and, and just listen to them about what, what they want as far as how, they, how they're going to be governed and let them kind of work their way out of this. Yeah. I love this line, two lines, but people in Miami do not want a rural Silicon Valley. They want their way of life to thrive, not to live in cave wall shadows of our world. Yeah, we probably should stop like just yelling at them and saying that they're only racist. I know. Like we should listen a little more and yell a little less, and even if that's what we think and feel, and even even if we're right, I feel like yeah, we are doing a bad job of listening, and it's hard. Although the people who are doing a bad job of listening are mostly like us, like overeducated progressive white people. Mm-hmm. It's like the people doing the mass of the yelling at Republicans when they walk into restaurants and right. the. You know, showing up at Tucker Carlson's house and yelling that they know where he lives. Like, these people are us. They're not the tramped upon people of color. Mm-hmm. So I think we feel really threatened. I talk about, this book does not sound funny. I talk about Wilfredo <laughs> Pareto's theory of the circulation of the elites. Mm-hmm. And that's that it's very like Animal Farm. But the idea is that there's a group of people who are what I call the boat elite. Yeah. And they're basically people who care about money and power. Uh, and then there's people, which I call the intellectual elite, which are people who care more about, you know, running things and the media and uh, social power and, and academics. And those two groups historically, especially according, according to this theory, are constantly at odds. And one is constantly overthrowing the other and looking for an opportunity to overthrow the other. And I do feel like right now the the boat elite, which I call because they all own boats. And I think people who own boats are horrible, horrible people. <laughs> and li- literally, we like made a rule where if you're 12 nautical miles away, those people can do whatever they want. <laughs> Just get them off of our shores. But those people, I think, are making a real attempt yeah. to take over. And, and we are totally freaked out more than anyone else, probably, because right. we're about to be disempowered. Like I've seen people tweet that, you know, if Ted Cruz wants to go to our elite restaurants, you know, then he has to, you know, embrace our philosophies. And what I think we don't realize is like our farm to table organic restaurants in D.C. are about to turn into like steak restaurants where everything is cooked well done. And there's like big bottle of Heinz on every table. <laughs> like we're going to lose. Yeah. I mean, Trump is a boat elite. Trump loves his steaks well done with ketchup. Yeah. Drives, nothing drives me more crazy. So essentially, like in that theory, the world is still governed by elites. It's just like elites in wolf's clothing. Right. It's like when, uh, was it the pigs, the animals turned from pig to man and man to pig and they yeah. couldn't tell the difference at yeah. the end of Animal Farm? Right. Yeah. You're, well, the theory is, the Pareto theory is the 80-20 theory that 20% of the people 
control 80% of the wealth or power. Right. So yeah, they'll always, there seems to always be, as much as people try to make it more fair, there always seems to be that 80-20 split. And you should obviously try to improve. Like a lot of the complaint against the elites is that the meritocracy is totally unfair, which is true. It's way more fair than like when, when I was a kid right. or my parents were kids. When, you know, if you, you could only be a man if you wanted to go to Princeton and you could only, you know. Right. It was, you had to go to a very small amount of boarding schools that your parents paid for. So it's way, it's getting better. It hasn't gotten nearly as good as it should have been by now. And that's something we should work on. But just because the meritocracy isn't perfect doesn't mean it's a, it's not a good system. Right. No, and it's definitely improved. I think you make the comment that you would not have gotten into Stanford Oh, today. no. I've yeah. been interviewing kids. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Last year I got to interview kids. And it's and they don't get in either. And they're, they're startlingly impressive and diverse and have done something by the time they graduated high school that is like a real thing, like yeah. started a company and they they got in. And just it's, yeah, it's really, the meritocracy is much better now. Yeah. No, it seems that way. I mean, having young kids, I... You got to home college them. Yeah. Yeah. They're never getting into college. No. No. I mean, I'll just be, I'll be thrilled if they get into some, you know, small liberal arts college somewhere. But... Those are still, those still fight the meritocracy. That is the sad <laughs> hope for the elite. This is going to freak you out, yeah. but... I don't know how relevant I think four-year college is going to be in 20 years. Really? Yeah. That, I've heard, with you, Peter Thiel? Like, what is the, <laughs> what is the theory here? <laughs> By the way, that was the worst thing for the elite, was that, that college scandal. It's like that and Jeffrey Epstein, you're everything they actually, every conspiracy theory about us. Come, come. There was a part of it that was, you know, yeah. proven true, which sucks. I think that it is, again, and here you go to a meritocracy, and I think we rely on those institutions or we have historically to like ferret out the best and the brightest, and I think it's kind of bullshit. And I, I don't, I love to learn, obviously, but I don't, and maybe this is right for me to say because I have an educational pedigree, but I don't really credit that with, I, I credit my high school, but college I just hung out in the art building and, you know, was kind of miserable. I needed that time to mature, but I don't, I don't feel like I learned. It didn't make me love learning more. Is that a horrible thing to say? No. no I, I wish we had trade schools. I wish we had, I wish we had where, <laughs> I wish kids were required to do public service. Sure. I feel like college is, would be better at like the age of 28. Just on a pure academic standpoint. Yeah. I think so. But then I remember like I got into this like master's program my last year of college. And I was like, now I'm going to study. I'm yeah. older now. I'm going to do it. And I just went back to my old ways. Totally. Like doing and things last minute. I didn't go to business school, but my friends who went to business school, I mean, all they do is party and network yeah. and learn but, Excel. But I do think being in that physical community with all those other people who had interests beyond their previous lives is is the most valuable part of yeah. that whole experience and i and i do think you kind of take that with you as you move on not just on a purely like practical level which is what the people in miami want from college they want you go to college you learn a trade about you know texas a&m you learn agriculture or mining right. or oil and gas and you apply it to your job i don't think at least on elite level, an elite level, that's what college was for. Mm -mm. I think it was for 
meeting people with really diverse opinions and arguing with them in classes and just reading some of the books you were assigned and learning different perspectives. I do think even if you could get more academically later in life, you're at a really, your brain and your social being is really willing to take in that stuff right then. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I, I do feel like a more diverse, more meritocratic university would make those conversations oh much God, more yeah. interesting than they were when you and I went. Um, oh, they are. They're more interesting now than yeah. when, when we went. Um, they're more interesting when you went than when I went, and increasingly so, especially, I mean, it's saying that there shouldn't be, we don't need four institutions in 10 years. Really? <laughs> no, I mean, it's a really popular thing to say amongst a certain Silicon Valley set, but there's, I always look at what people are doing. Like, America might be falling apart, but there's still a lot of people who want to come in and not many people who want to go out. Right. And there's a lot of people who want to go to Harvard from all over the world. You know, more if there were a thousand Harvards, they that, wouldn't have enough Harvards. But don't you think that that's just because it's a rubber stamp of acceptance and pedigree and that it and it doesn't necessarily have a bearing on your future success? I think there are rubber stamps of pedigree that go away. I mean, like belonging to a certain country club doesn't really hold that much weight anymore. Yeah. I think things that are useless, maybe they take too long to go away, but they do go away. And I don't I don't feel like the top universities in the world are they're thriving. I don't feel like they're going away. No. No, I don't think that the demand for them is going away. I guess I Or I, their contributions on you know, if you look at their their research and I mean right. not even just the amount of undergrads going there, but just their their power in yeah. the world, I think, is pretty firm. No, for sure. And that's but that's where I think many of them thrive. And it's almost I wonder if they shouldn't be sort of institutes where they do PhDs and and master's degrees. It just it's also when I look at candidates here, I don't even look. I don't care where people went to school. Oh, interesting. So when you look at their resume, even if they're very young, yeah. You uh, so what do you look at mostly? I I'm more, most their interested aura? in yeah their aura yeah their astrological sign sure yeah there's their the glow on their skin yeah no I am most interested in one like the way they present themselves in a conversation and then and sometimes experience although I also feel like internships are another place where there's not a lot of meritocracy. No, that's the worst. So, but I'm most interested in edit memos and ideas memos Uh, and how they think. That seems fair. That's what I care about. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, but, but what can I say again? Um, your book is hilarious. It's uh, we, I've not proven I feel like that today we haven't. at all. Well, good luck with everything. Thank you for being here. You are so kind. Thank you for Tell having me. Tell us a me. joke. Just kidding. Oh, two <laughs> men walk into a bar in Miami, which doesn't exist because that's a dry county. <laughs> that was the saddest thing I found out when I got there. I was like, I have to interview you all without drinking. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Joel Stein. For more on Joel, make sure to get a copy of his book, In Defense of Elitism, available now. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. When it comes to business decisions, how much importance do you place on intuition versus data? Asks Samantha. This is a really good question. And, you know, I think that I've come to understand as a, as a leader I really rely on both. I, I like to see all of the data and kind of weigh it with intuition. And, you know, that's kind of at that intersection. I think there's there's so much opportunity in that the science of 
the intuition of something and, and what, what the data has shown you. And that's what's so fascinating about having a company in, in, in a digital age because the level of transparency you can have around data and the granularity in terms of what you can understand about what's working about your business and not based on the data is is amazing and can really help you really can help inform the decisions that you make you know kind of more big picture strategically and also very much in the details so also we have a business that's very much driven by where we feel the culture's going and what we feel people want to know about or what they're interested in so i think yeah right in the middle i think i use both Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.